If you want this podcast free of ads, follow us now on patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up? To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? John is making me laugh down here in the basement <laughs> and his weird mind going <laughs> off in bizarre places. Places that you shouldn't go. Shouldn't go. It's not, it's and not, sometimes you don't come back from you either. You don't come back. You wade in and you get stuck. How's everything? Everything's good. Yeah, everything's just rocking along. My brother was over recently. Tony. Tony. How is he? Tony is a great form. You know, just for, for everyone out there, Tony was a teacher in London and he just retired at the Has age he of... retired? Retired at the age of 60. Wow. But do you know what he's doing now? He's a gorilla gardener. As so in he, not the gorilla ape, but the, the IRA gorilla gardener. <laughs> the IRA gorilla gardener, yeah, exactly. in London. It's very London, appropriate. Which is very, very appropriate. Which is very but, appropriate. But what he does is... Like he's, he's kind of into gardening. He's only recently got into gardening. So he, on his own street, in the middle of the night, plant flowers on like I a little love bit, it. patch of ground. But then he works, or not doesn't work, but he, he's part of an organization called Open Orchard. I think there might be a branch here. Branch here. Do you see what I did there? Oh my God, you're on fire. You are on fire. Get that but, man a job as a scriptwriter. I can see Seinfeld, come back. But, but what they do is, on kind of, you know, when in most roads and stuff, there's there might be a little patch of barren ground or... Or, or a what, derelict patch. Yeah, or a derelict patch. But what they do is they go in there and they plant fruit trees, like pears and apples and plums and all the rest. And it's... But the brilliant thing about it that's, is... That's really cool. I like it. People actually really appreciate it. And, you know, and people can go along and, and pick the apples and plums... When they're when they're ripe, it's for everybody. And this is a thing in London. This is a big thing in London. You know, I really like. I'll just tell you about Tony John's brother. <clears throat> I've mentioned it before, but John's brother tried to, and certainly, I think, converted half of our road uh, to proper Marxism many many years ago, <laughs> and he adopted this look, which was half Bob Dylan, half. Leon che, Trotsky. And Che Guevara. And Che Guevara as yeah, well. Yeah. And who didn't want to look like Che, right? <laughs> but it was kind of half Dylan, half Trotsky, because there's a kind of Trotsky sort of, you know, hardness about it. Yeah, and of yeah. course, the Che 
have you and I my 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 image of Tony is when we were kids, basically brandishing the little red book. Blonde on blonde under one. That's album, right. Yeah, yeah. And the little red mouse, yeah, little yeah. red book, and the other. And now I find it amazing that he's become an environmentalist. He is, is. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. Because you know, you know what they call those people in the UK? What? Watermelons. What? They're green on the outside, but they're still red on the inside. <laughs> so basically, what you yeah, have, be Tony. you have that'll all these Tony. old Marxists, right? <laughs> who said, "Oh, the Marx shit! It's not playing really well with the kids." What are we going to do? We're going to wrap it in a green <laughs> thing. We're going to become environmentalists. So just tell from Macker, Tony, it's great to see that you've moved into yeah. the watermelon business. <laughs> but sticking with that theme, yeah, dereliction. <laughs> Reimagining ideas, use of city space, urbanism, your lived environment, your heritage, all that stuff. Let's talk about dereliction today, John. Yes. Because this is a strange, strange phenomenon. Not unique to us, but you said in Oslo there was very little. Or well, Oslo is a beautiful city. And, and while I didn't get to see every suburb of it, yeah. the, I, I travel around a lot. I didn't see one rundown building, let alone derelict building. And so they maintain everything. They maintain everything, and they've and there's a certain amount of pride in all of that. But also, you know, I was over with Tony, my brother, in London, the watermelon, uh, <laughs> back in August, and it struck me. And it's the first time I've been in London in in about two or three years, but it struck me that an awful lot of it had changed. And it seems to be constantly regenerating itself. Yeah. Like it doesn't stop. And as a result of that, it's more vibrant. And then you have the likes of Tony, Johnny Appleseed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Planting. Planting is sort of Jack of the Beanstalk. Yeah, absolutely. Any patch of land, you throw, throw an apple on it. Well, let's, let's, let's discuss this. Let's go to Cork. We'll go, we'll go from Oslo yeah. to London. Let's go to the real capital. Let's go to Cork and let's talk dereliction with Frank O'Connor. About 10 years ago, I went for a stroll from the Mardike in Cork. Anybody who knows Cork will know the Mardike is to the west of the city where the River Lee kind of comes in and meets the city. And Cork, as you know, is on an island. And I went for a stroll one night. I was doing a gig the next morning and I walked from the Mardike all the way to what you might know if you're from Cork or if you're a visitor to Cork, there's a big sign called the Port of Cork. You see it as you come in from the Dublin Road. And that evening, I just kind of went up Washington Street, which is a big street on the way in, at the Western Road, Washington Street. And then I mooched around Patrick Street and I mooched around Oliver Plunkett Street. And I think it's a place called the Grand Parade. And what struck me was the extraordinary amount of dereliction. I actually felt that Cork City was falling down around me. There were buildings boarded up. There were buildings kind of supporting themselves like two drunks leaning against each other <laughs> on the way home from the pub. That you thought if one of these buildings takes a strange move, the whole thing's going to fall down. And they did. Derelict buildings were actually falling down in Cork City. Averted my gaze upwards. Even buildings that seemed to have a retail outfit on the ground floor. You look up and there was trees growing out of roofs. There were leaves growing out of windows. There was dereliction, dismay, decay everywhere. And I was shocked about this. And I wrote uh, a piece in the, in the column in the Irish Times, just kind of observing 
not really tying it into the housing crisis, not tying it into anything other than isn't this a lamentable state of our urban architecture and a lamentable state in which to allow our cities to decay in front of our very eyes. And I'll also tell you, many, many years ago, uh, in the early 90s, I had a German friend who came over to Dublin and we were walking along the quays in Dublin and she looked at me and she said, my God, the British were very vindictive. And I said, how do you mean? And she said, to blow up all these buildings and leave it. I can't believe they did this when they left the country. <laughs> she thought the Brits had blown up all these buildings in Dublin Keys, right? And left and vindictively allowed the impoverished post-colonial hotties to pick up the tab. And I told her, the Brits blew up nothing. We allowed this and these buildings to decay themselves. And she couldn't believe it. She could not believe that you'd do this. So dereliction has been something I've been interested in for many, many years. And I was thinking about this about a year ago, and I maybe have written something else about it. And then I spotted on Twitter a guy who was writing something similar, a guy called Frank O'Connor down in Cork. I think I'd written something about Cork again. I think Frank had responded. I'm now delighted to have him on the podcast. For the last year, he's been campaigning on Twitter, showing photographs, just simply photographs, images, and, you know, leaving those images there of decay, dereliction, which I always call vandalism for the landowning classes. I have him on the line. Frank, how are you? Great, David. It's uh, it's a pleasure to be here today to have a chat with you about uh, dereliction. Dereliction. Well, you know, it's, it's an unusual thing for people to go. But you you guys, you're, you're, you know, yourself and Jude, isn't it, who's working, who works with you? Yeah, my partner Jude, yes. So Jude Cherry. So yeah, it's been um, it's been a labour of love for us for uh, for the last 18 months. Um, but but yeah, since we came back to Ireland, obviously it's something we noticed, you well, know, the high levels of dereliction. Tell me about Cork City, because it seemed to me that Cork City was more blighted than anywhere else. Or not anywhere else, but as blighted as anywhere else. What's going on in Cork? And what do you think is driving it and what can fix it? Because not only is it unsightly, but it's actually when you've got a housing crisis, it's unbelievably wasteful. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose for context, Jude and I moved back to Ireland three years ago and we chose to live in Cork City. And uh, before we came back, we had noticed that there was a few things a bit strange, but we kind of fell in love with the city and the people. But when we moved back three years ago, actually three years ago, as it happens, David, uh, today and we moved back and um, what struck us was beautiful city amazing architecture amazing heritage but such a problem with decay and dereliction and not just in terms of homes but also in terms of heritage so really i think it was a huge shock moving back from amsterdam in particularly where they really value their heritage and they also value the right to a home as well you know amsterdam is over 50 percent social housing in the city alone so for us to come back and experience it it was a huge shock and and so we set out really to try and understand why there was so much dereliction in cork and um to do that i mean you know you've asked a few questions there i mean it's it's really difficult to understand why there is so much waste like you say we're in a housing crisis we're in a climate and resource crisis the most sustainable building is existing we are very lucky in ireland to have such amazing building stock i mean other countries would bite our hands off for the buildings and the architecture we have. There's no doubt about that. And Cork in particular has some amazing architecture, influenced by the Italians, by the, uh, by the, by the, by the Dutch as well, actually. Yep, as no, absolutely by the Dutch, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because like you said, it's built in a marsh, it's got an island. 
So really, yeah, for us, it was about, you know, why is this the case? Why is there so much waste? I mean, you combine that with, we came back to a crazy homelessness crisis as well. So you have all these things going on. So what we did was we started mapping the city from day one to try and understand why is this the case? And clearly, as we started to map the city and walk around, I suppose, if you like, and you've hinted at it already, I suppose our experience got worse and worse. We started to get us down, you know, from a mental health point of view. It was depressing. You know, yes, so it is depressing. We chose to live in the city centre. So Jude and I, I suppose, bucked the trend, really. So rather than moving to the suburbs, we moved into the city centre because we wanted to, to live a life without a car, that we'd rent a car if we needed it. We'd walk everywhere, 15-minute city. I know you spoke a lot yourself about that in your podcast. So living the 15-minute city, being near to everything, being part of that local economy. And then realising as we walked down from our house in Blackpool through Shandon, because we're right on the edge of Shandon, we're passing derelict buildings on our routes into town. We couldn't go into town from our house without passing dereliction. And passing beautiful homes decaying for decades, many for decades. And uh, I suppose really we were trying to say, why is this the case and what can we do about it? And we, as we started to research, we realised there was a lot of folks in Ireland around the housing forest, around homelessness, but very few people had really talked about dereliction. And as it happened, your podcast that you had done, I think two or three years ago, was one of the sources of information that we drew on. And obviously the examiner, the Irish examiner, had also written a few articles, but very few people had gone into detail in it. So we said, okay, let's try and understand that. Why is it happening? And from that, I suppose that's where we started doing this Twitter thread. We start in June 2020, June last year. Now, I suppose for context, we've been traveling a lot for the first year we were back because our work is mostly overseas. So we work in circular economy, sustainable design, resources. So COVID kicked in and suddenly our kind of research we were doing in Cork, we were like, what are we going to do with it? And we were then restricted, obviously, to our two kilometers and our five kilometers. So we, we then had, I suppose, an opportunity and COVID gave us that opportunity to start going deeper into it. We started the, the Twitter thread. But at the time we started that conversation on Twitter, we didn't really have an Irish network. You know, so there was no one we actually really sure, knew. Sure, yeah, yeah. You didn't have locally. a you didn't have a gang so, to kind of say, okay, I'll, I'll no, go. yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally, David. I mean, that was totally the case. And I suppose we didn't know, to be honest, how people would respond. And initially there was very little response to our tweets. Every day I'd post a property in Cork, a home, or any other property that was clearly derelict, and I would tell a story around it. But over time, people started to interact. And what we found was there was a lot of, I mean, people making excuses, saying things like, that's the way things are, just accept it, you know. And I suppose what we felt it had been normalized. The people are at a point in Ireland that perhaps we've all grown up with it. It's been part of our life for so long that we've just accepted it. Now, I suppose my career has always been challenging what people accept as being normal. I mean, you know, I've, like I said, I've over 30 years working on resources and sustainability of the economy. So I've always been kind of going against that, that kind of trend. So for me and for Jude, it was like, why does this have to be normal? Why do people like us who choose to live in a city have to walk past this every day? Now, we haven't got kids, so it's just the two of us. But I can imagine if you're a family and you want to live in a city, it's not going to be good for your family. It's not going to be good for your kids. It's, you know, it's, sure. it's nicer, it's bad for your mental health and your well-being. So as we started to do the trade and we started to get the excuses back, what we, what we found was there was a lot of, I suppose, they were becoming what we called urban myths. So people were saying, you know, it's, it's because of planning or it's because it's too expensive. And so what we started to do was collate all these excuses and put together a list of myths 
And from that then, basically Jude, who does most of the data stuff, she delved in deeply into all of the publicly available data. So basically, for the first 340 properties on the trade, she went into all the publicly available data. And from that, we debunked what we would consider 10 myths of dereliction. Let's let's look at those myths of dereliction, okay? Because it's important, because I want to get from the myths to the why, to the what we can do about it. I'll just give you my own top and safety is the following. I think that, and maybe we, we can get onto this, that there is an inexplicable hatred on the part of many for historic buildings in this country. I don't understand why. Uh, I don't understand where it comes from. I remember years ago, my father pointing out to me, who was a dub, that all the city planners in Dublin, in his head, were were Kulshis who didn't love the city mm. or who mm. chose never to live in the city. So if you did reasonably well in Dublin, you got the hell out of the city as quickly mm. as you could. So the city you left fallow, it wasn't your place. So there's no endemic, intrinsic love of the city. That's the first mm. thing. Second thing, I think that in economics, there is what we should call, you never hear it, an inappropriate owner. There is an appropriate owner who is a custodian of a building, and there's an inappropriate owner who seems to hate the building he or she owns and is always thinking of what next I can do with it rather than what it is at the moment. And then the third one, and that stems from it, and this is not economics, this is just an observation, is that this is therefore vandalism on the part of inappropriate owners who should be penalized for behaving as they're doing. I believe that dereliction is a profoundly anti-social act. It's as anti-social as throwing a brick through a window, as far as I'm concerned. But I now, so I've got given my top and safety. I want you to feed all this in to tell me about your myths. The, the myths that people said, well, this is it's because of this, that, and the other. Perfect. And I just want to say, like, totally agree with you on that, on the social element. In fact, the first tweet on the thread, hashtag social crime. So from the start, Jude and I were looking at this very much from the lens. It was a social crime. It was a breakdown, what we consider the social contract. And again, what you said, sorry, on heritage, I totally agree with you. And one of the things we've observed is a lot of people who make decisions on the city do not live in the city. Yes. And I think that's a key thing. And you, So I think I totally agree with your observations there. The idea of custodian, a responsible custodian, rather than a responsible owner. So with the myths that we came across were, first thing is uh, people are saying there's no profit in their election. You know, it's the poor owners. Why? A lot of people, to be honest, used to come back and troll and say, oh, you're always at the owners, the poor owners, and there's no profit and they wouldn't be doing it, but they can't afford to do them up. And what we showed with some of the data that you uh, went through is that there's a lot of profit to be made in, in, in their election. A very small terrace house could make 20,000 euros a year without doing anything to us. Explain so that, that was, to me. Explain that to me. So, because again, so let's say you see a small house in Cork or in Dublin, right? And it's boarded up and you're thinking, okay, what's the reason for this? What's the profit in this for the person? Is it to let it go, knock it down and rebuild? I mean, as you know very well, you speak about it so much in your podcast, we've such a buy-in housing market anyway. So the prices are constantly going up. So in this scenario, I suppose, that we looked at for this uh, was actually a property that was just boarded up as investment. So it was the idea just keeping boarded up and every year the value of that property I will hear go you. up. I hear you. So just... But also on the 
what you're talking about in terms of demolition, that's a whole aspect in itself as well. And we've looked into detail in that as well, in the fact the almost, if you like, that planned approach towards long-term demolition of the property. And you've seen some of the images on Twitter because I know you responded quite a lot over the last year. And some of the ones you responded, you've seen that where a roof might so be, be slowly taken off the property. You know, yes. A property that might have a roof this year, next year the roof might slowly be taken off. Now we've heard stories from lots of neighbours because when we go around, like Jude and I go around and we chat to people and we take pictures and I love chatting to people anyway, so the conversations are very important. But a lot of people off the record will say, I have seen a builder here with his ladder and his hammers breaking those slates. I, I completely understand. In fact, I know that in Dublin there was an epidemic of this, certainly in the 70s and 80s, and there was some connection to if your building didn't have a roof, you didn't pay rates. So they took the bloody roofs off them. Really? Yes. Oh, this is true, John. This is all true. There was a very well-known, I moved into a place called Parliament Street in 1991, which was which is now very chic, uh, boulevard almost, right? Uh, but then was pretty shabby around the edges. And from my flat, which was on the third floor, and this was the only building actually inhabited in Parliament Street. Oh, Back right. then, mm. you could see that, uh, we had a very good conversation with pigeons who used to land on the opposite <laughs> thing. And the but I, I was intrigued. And then an architect friend of mine said, actually, David, it's because of a loophole that you don't pay rates if you have no roof, which was mm. at the time meant to protect poor people but of course, it ends up protecting rich people yeah. because it allows the buildings to go derelict and then they can knock them down and sell them for redevelopment. So keep talking to me about all these things. This this fascinates me. Yeah. So, yeah. So I suppose the, the first, like I said, bit was the profit. And the second one then was there was no incentive for an owner. But I mean, when we looked at Cork alone, there's like four or five schemes at least that owners can use to do up their properties, you know, whether it's like leasing schemes, whether it's repair and lease, whether it's, it's living city initiatives. So, I mean, when I go through another few myths, I mean, yeah, go for the, it. the planning, planning system is holding back progress. That's a very common one. So a lot of people go, oh, it's the planning fault. You know, again, you're too hard on the owners, you're too hard on the council. And we've been accused of being hard on the council all the time continually. But, but when you've been through the data, she found 73% of properties. Now, this was a study of 340. That's a, that's a decent size. That's a decent size. It is size, yeah. the biggest study that's been done so far. I mean, none of the, what we found is no one else has gone into that kind of detail. 73% properties with planning permission left at lapse. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and 5% of derelict properties had been refused, David. So only 5% were refused planning permission. Okay, so the council is doing... It's bit, or the planners are doing its bit to try and create a playing field that is actually conducive to yeah. some sort of redevelopment. So why do you think it is? What is your, let's say your top three reasons. Why is dereliction, is there an epidemic of dereliction? And the reason I say epidemic is the following, is that there is this theory, sometimes upheld, sometimes not in urbanism, called the broken windows theory. Mm -hmm. That basically if the building next door to you goes derelict and the one on the far side goes derelict, over time, dereliction seeps into your own building. You say, well, you know what? I don't want to live around here. I don't particularly want to hang out here. I don't want to do up my building if the buildings next door beside me are, are in a terrible state. And in actual fact, dereliction is kind of contagious. It jumps from one building to the next. So it is a sort of an epidemic. Why do you think this is happening? 
Yeah, well, totally the broken window. And we've seen that because we're three years watching the window breaking and we're three years watching those properties decay. So totally on the ball. Like we are real life seeing that kind of experience. And um, I think, honestly, it's a cultural thing. There's a cultural acceptance of it. I mean, the fact that up to people like yourself raising it, like I said, a few newspaper articles, very few people were talking about it when we came back three years ago. And that's why initially we thought, is it just us? Are we going crazy? Are we the ones imagining this? But, you know, but I think it's a culture of acceptance, unfortunately. You know, it's been normalized. It's that's the way things are. And that cultural acceptance combined in with a lack of political will, because people seem to be unwilling to challenge property in Ireland. And I know it goes back to maybe historically, you know, the fact we were an old colony and the fact that ownership is such a big thing. But when you look at that cultural acceptance of it and the lack of political will to change it, you know, we have it, as you know yourself and you've spoken about it, we have a derelict site register. We have a tool that we can currently use. We can charge 7% levies every year on the, the value of the property. We can put properties on the derelict site register first. Of the 340 that we shared initially, and overall, over the 12 months, it was about 450, only about 90 of properties were on the derelict site register in Cork. Yet, within two kilometres, Jude and I, conservatively, now this was a conservative, we had 450. We actually have a couple more hundred, which we didn't put up. So if there's only 90 or so on the list, and and if only a small percentage of those they're putting the 7% levy on, that shows a lack of will, politically, local authority level, and also culturally. You know, and they are huge challenges. Okay, and lack of will usually stems from, or could stem from, an interest in dereliction, an interest in maybe the resale value, an interest in letting that old Victorian building, even Georgian building, with some Italianate and, and Dutch uh, references, mm. letting that collapse, and then we'll gut it, and then we'll turn it into a glass and chrome office or whatever. But we're not really seeing that either. Yeah, I mean, it's like I started kind of the frame dereliction wastelands. I mean, I didn't want to do that. But what we were finding is what you've described earlier, is that you have one property, then you have another one three doors down, and suddenly you have a whole block in Cork City. Like North Main Street is a great example. And that's one of the ones that's come up a lot in the media the last year, where the property starts to fall onto the street. And you mentioned earlier the fact that we've had we've actually had a debt in Cork that's gone back quite a while, but we've had a lot of crumbling buildings in the last now, year. Hold alone. on, is North Main Street the place that the great Sir Henry's was on? I'm trying to that's remember. So Main Street. I knew it was I was used I knew it was some Main Street. Maybe my head wasn't in the right place when I left that club, but I knew it was some Main Street. <laughs> now I'm trying to figure out. Okay. Well, but that's the historic core, David. Like we so we live up just on the edge of Blackpool Black Chandon and we walk into town. You go by the Bottle Exchange, which is so beautiful around there, but it's obviously again the Bottle Exchange is another building that's been left there like for, for, for a decade or more. But you walk down Shandon Street, wonderful historic part of the city, cross over into North Main Street, and you're just it's derelict building, it's run down, it's decaying heritage, and they are they actually knocked a few recently actually on the street. That they've been left derelict for quite a long time, but they are putting up student accommodation. So we are seeing, a, I suppose, some some building happening in some of the streets. But a lot of them have been long term left to go derelict. They have started a CPO process for a number of buildings now, 
But the buildings that they're looking at for CPO, some of those have dated back to 1760. I mean, this is the kind of history we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's and, an extraordinary urban history. And I mean, maybe, now do you think, I'm going to throw this in, right, that for many of our myths in Ireland, uh, one of the foundational myths uh, of the Republic was that basically there was the people who lived in the city were kind of jackines, right? And the architecture that was built largely by the Brits or some outside force. And what 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 was real Irish was rural, was farming, was countryside, was certainly in Dublin in the 1950s and 60s when the developers were knocking down George and Dublin, there was an antipathy which migrated towards hostility to that architecture and what it represented. Because I'm trying to understand what the, where the cultural thing comes from. And so, so have we been doing that? Because I suppose I have never spoken so much about heritage since I've come back to Ireland, honestly. And uh, that's the reality, because I've never been anywhere, and I've travelled all over the world, where anywhere has left their heritage decay so badly. And we've been asking that question that you just asked me. And we've gone all the way, and we've been lucky to meet some different architects and stuff, and different conservation people to try and answer that question. It's like an abusive relationship. You know, like I said, other countries would love to have what we have. Cork City still has so much that can be saved, so much. And in fact, what's happened as, as a result of a work, which is kind of strange, people are now talking about derelict Ireland in France, in Italy. So the media good, are beginning good, to cover Good, They're beginning to cover it. And, and we, we had a, a London reporter recently speaking, and she's promoting derelict Ireland as a tourist destination. Ironically, obviously. But you could flip it over and go, like, this is an amazing opportunity for homes, places to play and create, you know, meaningful work. But you're right, that kind of love-hate relationship, but the, does that go back to colonies, uh, being colonized? Well, does it go back to maybe a lack of understanding about heritage? Look, heritage, as you know very well, it's vital for a sense of place. It's vital for mental health. It's vital for local economy and job creation. It's, there's so many reasons heritage is vital. And if you combine heritage and homes in a city, You've got a winning formula and combine that, I must say as well, with places for people to create and communities to build. And Frank, if you just put on top of that, okay, climate change, the 50-minute city, the idea of denser living, the idea of getting out of the car, not doing the commute, not ending up in the dormitory towns and facilitating the dormitory towns. You know, the world is moving towards more dense living. Mm. We have infrastructure here, which thankfully isn't all shattered, which is called the core of Cork City, Limerick, Galway, Waterford, Dublin, these cities, right? That there is still a living core that can be saved. We have a housing crisis. We also have an entire generation of people who want to live in the city. We can suggest when my parents were younger that, you know, the status they derived of living in the suburb was you were doing okay. You were on the way up if you were living in the suburb. And that's cool. That's what, well, that was, was driving them, okay? But now the opposite's the case. And it strikes me that there must be a silver bullet, or have you figured out a silver bullet that can combine punishment and incentive in order to stop this? No, absolutely. I suppose we've looked at it in um, three main areas. One is usage. So we've looked at, can we bring in a vacancy tax and 
can we bring in compulsory usage in Ireland? Okay, so these are new measures that we can bring. I mean, look at best practice in other countries, basically. So usage is one element. The other thing is ownership. And we've looked a lot at, can we CPO, compulsory purchase? Can we compulsory sales, which might be in a more effective tool, actually, than compulsory purchase? Because compulsory purchase is a long, drawn-out contest. Yes, no, no, no. And a sale is a much better thing because you basically say, this is for sale now, who wants it? Exactly, exactly. And you get someone in and like, you're right. I mean, I'm sure we both know loads of people and uh, wanting to live in a city and wanting and would be willing to do up in old place as well. And then the third element, which you hinted earlier as well, is custodian. Is this idea of like having some kind of custodian order so that we look at building control, you know. You know, you wouldn't be allowed, for example, in the Netherlands to let your building go into decay and fall in the streets. You would never get to that point. So you have got to look at What's the design DNA of Cork? We've a wonderful design DNA that's accumulated over hundreds of years. You know, can we have a dereliction tax? We already have it. Can we enforce it? Can we look at, you know, of course, at times you have to take certain buildings down. We, we realize that. But with the resource crisis and the climate crisis, I mean, a lot of our work we do internationally is like, how can we maintain the existing building or the existing product? And if we have to take a product apart or a building down, can we reclaim the materials within it? And in Cork, it's got some amazing sandstone and limestone and other materials that you wouldn't be mining anymore. So I suppose the idea, we're interested in the idea, can you abolish, demolish? Obviously, within the considerations of some stuff will have to come down. Yeah. But like, if you bring your urban centre, like in Cork City, on a centre mm-hmm. island, bring that back to life with families living in it. I mean, my God. No, it changes the game completely. Oh, David, honestly, like people would come from all over. Well, Frank, I'm going to con- conclude here because I think many people listening will say, okay, you know, this is so straightforward. And you, you feel that you're on your Todd, right? And you know what happens in Ireland when you go out against consensus, right? Okay, go, you go in three phases. I can tell you all about it. We can sit and have a pint, right? <laughs> the first phase is open ridicule, where people yeah. laugh at you. The second phase <laughs> is what I would call the quite nasty phase where those who you are threatening come in and do a hatchet job on you. So you've got open ridicule, then you've got the hatchet job phase, and then you get to the phase, which is a phase I've got to on a couple of occasions, which is everybody pretends they were on your side all the time (laughs) phase, right? So stick at it and just be aware that's the way the country works. And you will get to the everybody everybody pretends they're on your side all the time phase. But it does seem to me that there needs to be Punishment for bad behavior, Frank, and reward for good behavior. And good behavior is actually being a custodian of the building, starting building by building. I would say in Holland, you would be shamed by your peers if you were to allow a beautiful building go to rack and ruin. We need to get to a stage where it is shameful to do something as destructive and as vandalistic to a property and i think we'll get there but by the way and yourself and you just keep at it and give me the have you got a site i know you're on on twitter but have you a site where people can go because what i always think in in this case frank is that everybody people in any small town in ireland can see dereliction wouldn't it be interesting to have a little place that they could just take a photo and say that's down the road that's on the road and not have 300 but 3,000 examples of it. Uh, absolutely. And I suppose that's why we kind of, the, the hashtag Derelict Ireland came in and we've ended up helping people set up in Dublin. 
uh, set up in Limerick and other places as well. So you're dead right. I mean, the thing we've got back, which has been wonderful, is people say to us now, they can't go into their town or city or village without looking up. I think that's a wonderful output for us, that people are looking up and, and actually they're recognising that it's such an issue. But you're right, we haven't got somewhere set up so far because I mean, I'm trying to use different social media platforms. But you're right, we've been encouraging people because this will only change, David, as you know very well. It'll only change when everyone, as much as possible, gets involved you know, and shares their stories because that's the key and that's what we want is we want people to share their stories. But so far, no, we haven't kind of set up any particular place where people can do that together. But it's a good point, you know. It's um, We do need that kind of mass for critical change, you know, for change. Well, maybe that's the next phase, Frank. But listen, Frank O'Connor, it's great to talk to you. You're doing an amazing job. I think most people listening will say that makes complete sense, not just to protect your heritage, but you can argue from a social side, an economic side, a political side, an urbanist side, a heritage side, all makes sense. So I, I think even John over here is with you. <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> Woo! Go, Frank. Listen, Frank, that was great. Talk to you Thank soon, you Frank. Man. Yeah, take care. Thanks a lot. Thank care. you. Bye. Bye bye. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So, the message there is, Frank was great there, but the message is, like, we need to set up some sort of central point where people can use it. log, yeah, just to take a photograph, use your phone, take a photograph. Absolutely, absolutely. And and actually get a real grasp of of the scale of the problem. Because as we all know, it's enormous. Yeah. It I mean, really you, is. You talk about any village, any small town, any of these, you know, kind of provincial market towns in Ireland, all are blighted by phenomenal dereliction. Yeah. Do you know it would be quite interesting to see? You know, Bank of Ireland and Ulster Bank are selling all their banks. Oh, yeah, yeah. Maybe they should be... Donating them? Donating them. Compulsory sales. Say, we're not going to... Don't just leave them there. Com- yeah. Not a c- compulsory purchase. 
compulsory sales, you've got to sell this quickly in the next couple of months because it's the idea of those old buildings, usually Victorian buildings. Yeah. Kind of left, they become an eyesore, then the roof comes off, then yeah. suddenly they're damp, then suddenly yeah. maybe that's an interesting thing. So two things. One is have a look at those old bank properties. And two, I think your idea of a register, but a people's register, not an official register. Yes. Yeah, people's yeah. register. And number three, bring in a Henry George type philosophy and approach to building management and taxation. And, and the use of land. So we're out on real Georgian buildings as opposed to heritage George, you see what we did there? No. Georgianism. Excellent. We're gone. See you later. Just before you go, thank you all very much for supporting us on Patreon. And also, if you don't support us on Patreon and you want to learn economics, we have this fantastic new course, which has a video element. It has an audio element. It has all the reading lists. It has notes. It has all sorts of bizarre and unusual takes from the world of economics. It's called International Trade and Money. First three lectures are Humanomics, which is about putting humanity back into economics. Second lecture is the trading ape, the idea that we are actually hardwired to trade. And the third is the myth of barter. And of course, this is a 14 lecture series taking us all the way up to crypto. If you want to learn economics, join me on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams.